I had to wrap them in blue paper and put a little silver seal on it, and I hated this job. Because I was a really bad rapper. I mean, everything would look all crooked, and I'd get hairs in the scotch tape. And When rock singer and poet Patti Smith was a young woman, she worked at a bookstore in New York. Each year when the winners of the National Book Award was announced, Patti Smith was extra busy packing books. I would get like a big roll of gold seals from the National Book Foundation, and it would say, winner of the National Book Award. And I thought that was so cool. And I used to daydream about writing a book, and then I'd win the National Book Award, and then somebody else would have to wrap them. I'm Pike Malinowski, and you're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. Patti Smith's dream came true. In 2010, she published Just Kids, a memoir about her relationship with photographer Robert Mablethorpe, who was her lover and her friend and who died in 1989, 42 years old. Just Kids won the National Book Award and two years later she entered the stage at the Louisiana Literature Festival, where she gave an extraordinary interview talking about her life with books and some of her mentors. When I was really young, William Burroughs told me Build a good name. You know, keep your name clean. Don't make compromises. Don't worry about making a bunch of money or being successful. Be concerned with doing good work and make the right choices. And if you build a good name, eventually, you know, that name will be its own currency. Enjoy this 70-minute conversation with the stellar Patti Smith. Interviewer is Christian Lund the director of the Louisiana Literature Festival. Welcome to Louisiana, Patty. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. It's beautiful here. Really special. When you're on stage, you are considered as the godmother of punk. But, <laughs> but when I read your books, um, it seems like I meet another Patty Smith. It's like you were expressing two different sides of yourself in two different medias. Well, there's a lot more than two, because as Walt Whitman said, we contain multitudes. And that energy uh, that people later called punk rock, uh, an energy I've had since I was a child, um, I still have, I'll have it my whole life, but I have many different energies and many ways of expressing myself. So if I'm expressing myself if I'm, you know, taking care of my children, if I am washing clothes, uh, I am still the girl that can put her foot through the amplifier. You know, I am, I am the same person. I would like to invite you to do a reading from a wool gathering. Sure. This little passage talks about the year 1957. I think I was about 10 years old, and it's the story of two important things the birth of my little sister, Kimberly, which uh, I wrote the song Kimberly about on horses, and also about my dog, Bambi, who I, now it's how many years from 57? Mm, 67, 77, 87, Wow, over 50 years ago, <laughs> I still remember this dog with the most precious of loves. In the summer of 1957, my youngest sibling, Kimberly, was born. 
She came 10 years after me, and it was a surprise to everyone, including my mother. I remember my parents leaving for the hospital. There was a commercial for paper towels on TV from the Kimberly Clark Company, and that is what my mother named her. My mother said when she saw her face, she knew she had seen that face before, but she couldn't place it. Then she realized it was her own face. Kimberly looked exactly like my mother. Kimberly was a sunny child, although she had severe asthma and a host of allergies. In our little house, we were now eight. Four children, my mother, my father, my mother's cat Mittens, and my dog Bambi. My mother loved her cat, and I love my dog as myself. My dog Bambi was a good companion, intelligent, quiet, and obedient. We had brought her with us when we left Germantown to start a new life in southern New Jersey. My father used to go to the barber shop when he had some extra change to get a haircut. His barber sometimes let me sit in the big chair and he'd trim my bangs. Somehow they were never even. One day he brought a basket of puppies into the barber shop. His miniature collie had mated with a German shepherd. That's quite a match, right? <laughs> it's like David and Goliath. <laughs> All the pups were long-haired, except for the runt of the litter. She had the coat of a shepherd, but the markings of a collie. She really resembled a small deer, so sweet and vulnerable in the basket, and I called her Bambi. My father said we couldn't afford to have another dog. I said she could eat some of my food. But he also wondered about my mother. He worried because she was still grieving for her dog Sambo, a lively black cocker spaniel that was killed on the railroad tracks while we were gathering coal. The coal would fall from the passing railroad cars. There were enough pieces that would fall to fill our pockets for the coal stove. Sambo never listened and ran in front of the train. My mother was devastated by the loss and my father didn't think she would want another dog. But Bambi was so meek and so loving that he relented. After a small flutter of protests and the fact that Mittens the cat took a liking to her, she was given entrance into our family. I had never wanted to leave the city. Germantown, where we came from, was just a short trolley ride to Philadelphia, where there were lots of big libraries with an infinite amount of books. But nonetheless, we moved to a little starter house in Woodbury Gardens with a pig farm and a swamp to the right and an unkept field and an old barn across the road. It was a comfort having my dog in this unknown territory. We spent long hours together as I explored the small forest lining the edge of our neighborhood. I named all I saw, Red Clay Mountain, Rainbow Creek, Punk Swamp. There was life everywhere, mysterious and energetic. 
In time, I came to cherish our surroundings. We led our Peter Pan existence, Bambi my spirit dog with the deep, sad eyes. Kimberly was often ill. The doctor ordered the house to be stripped of every allergen, including our precious animals. She was allergic to the dog and cat. This was a terrible blow, yet I was not without understanding. I had no resentment against the baby or the doctor. We all knew it was our duty to help Kimberly, but the thought of giving up mittens and Bambi was heartbreaking. I thought of running away with my dog, but where would we go? We could sleep in the fields, shrouded at night with the invisible cloth of the wool gatherers. I could hide in the forest and build a hut in the trees and live like one of the lost boys. But I knew I could never really run away and leave my siblings. I could never really leave Kimberly. Who would rock her to sleep when my parents were working? Who would watch her sleep, making certain she did not hold her breath and leave us forever? The day was fast coming when the family offered to take Bambi. I vaguely knew one of them from school. The idea sickened me. In my heart, I felt a possessiveness I had never experienced. I couldn't bear of someone else having my dog. I got up quite early and I left the house with her. It was in my mind to take her to all the places we loved. We would take one last walk to Red Clay Mountain and stop by Rainbow Creek. I had a peanut butter sandwich wrapped in wax paper and some dog biscuits. I sat with Bambi at my feet and surveyed my domain. Bambi would not eat her treats. She knows, I thought. She knows. I stopped trying to hide what was going to happen, and I told her everything without words. I told her through my eyes and through my heart. She licked my face, and I knew she understood. Bambi rarely barked. There was only the silence of her sad, dear eyes. Soon it was time to go back home. But first I took her to Thomas's field, and we lay in the grass and looked up at the clouds. The sun was warm on my face, and I dozed, and Bambi slept with her head and paw resting on my chest. I awoke, and I knew we had to hurry home. I could feel my mother searching me out. I ran across the fields towards home. I ran, and it was just across the road. Bambi darted ahead of me. I called her. She stopped suddenly in the middle of the road. I called her again, but she stayed still, looking right into my eyes. Even from a distance, it was as if I could see my own reflection. I froze. I just stood there as a fire truck came racing out of nowhere and struck her. The firemen stopped and got out. My father rushed from the house and scooped her up, laying her near the bushes, the sacred bushes of God. No one said anything. No one asked what happened. The firemen felt terrible for killing her, but I knew it wasn't his fault. 
I knelt down and looked at my dog. She was still warm. There was not a mark on her, not even a drop of blood. It was as if she was sleeping, but she was dead. My mother was crying. My sister's astonished blue eyes dominated her compassionate face. I got an old woolen blanket and wrapped her in it. My father buried her by the side of the house, and we said our prayers. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You said you were living in a clan of Peter Pan when you were a child. What, could you give some examples of what was that? Well, as a child, I, I cherished all my books. I loved uh, Little Women and, and Pinocchio and, and Alice in Wonderland. But Peter Pan was really my favorite because that was the atmosphere in the world that I most lived in. And really, I thought it was possible because it was in a book that we didn't have to grow up. And when I was very small, I decided I didn't want to grow up, that I would stay about 10 or 11, and that was good enough for me. And uh, it was a big surprise for me. Actually, I was heartbroken to find out that we didn't have a choice. I thought we were just put on Earth, and then we could decide what happens in our life. But I've never let go of that feeling. You know, I've never really felt that I've grown up. You describe how your family had your, their daily prayers, and praying seemed like an important uh, part of your childhood life. I connect that somehow maybe to your poetry. Do you well, see? you know, to, to me, prayer is the essential, you know, the essential way that we uh, communicate with our loved ones and, of course, with our God. Um, in my life, my last uh, time I was in an organized religion was when I was 12. Uh, I left my religion, but I never left prayer. Um, you can pray anywhere. You can pray. There's beautiful cathedrals and churches everywhere, but at the sea or in a field or when you're falling asleep at night, you know, it's a way to stay in contact sometimes just with yourself, sometimes with a higher energy and sometimes with our loved ones. And uh, prayer to me is just a, a natural part of being. You had an early interest in poetry. Do you, do you see there's a connection between your being brought up with uh, praying and uh, the interest for poetry? Yes, uh, I never thought about that really, but that's really a, a good thought because many poems are like little prayers. Um, my first book of poetry was called Silver Pennies, and it was all poems that had to do with uh, elves and fairies and mysticism. And in that book, uh, I read Blake, I read um, Yeats and uh, Rachel Lindsay, many poets that have stayed with me in my life. And uh, they, a lot of them were like little prayers. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? It's it's quite like a prayer, and um, uh, yes, that's a nice thought. I, I think there is an absolute connection there. 
You were also reading uh, Arthur Rimbaud, the French poet, when you were 16. That's quite an early age to discover French poetry. Well, I discovered uh, Rimbaud two ways. Um, when I was uh, 14, 15 years old, I wanted to be an artist, and uh, I was very skinny, and um, I loved Medigliani, and I loved his paintings uh, because, well, they reminded me of the Sienese paintings, but, uh, you know, his models I could relate to. And I read a book about him, and he loved this poet named Arthur Rimbaud. And I didn't know who Arthur Rimbaud was, but I thought, uh, I have to read him if this painter liked him so much. And then uh, I was in Philadelphia, and there was a um, secondhand bookstore outside a bus station, books very cheap. And there was a book, and I saw it. And what attracted me was the boy, the face on the cover. I mean, I was 15, 16 years old, and. Arthur Rimbaud is really cute. <laughs> so truthfully, I was uh, um, attracted by his face. And then I picked up the book and realized this was the poet that Medigliani liked. So that was very lucky that it just happened to be a very cute poet. So, um, so I uh, fell in love with him, but not just his face. When I opened the book, his language, uh, I couldn't really understand it all because poetry is sometimes like a secret language and sometimes takes a while to unlock uh, but I've never let that bother me if I don't understand a poem right away but I'm seduced by its beauty I just uh, I just revel in the beauty of the language so it took me a while to decipher Rimbaud but I loved him right away his words and his face. <laughs> well, until I discovered Bob Dylan. <laughs> you left rural South Jersey when you were about 20 years old and yes. went to New York City. And you described that you felt like a country mouse in the city Yes. at that time. Yeah. Uh, New York City back then, it's quite different from what it is today. Could yeah. you describe the atmosphere that you... You, that you met at that time? Well, I mean, first of all, for me, it was fantastic because there was no real culture uh, where I was raised. There was no libraries, no bookstores, no art museums. Um, there were fields and pig farms, and uh, most of the culture was in my house because all my family were readers. So our house always had lots of books. But when you left my house, there was, you know, nature, which is beautiful, but uh, n n no culture. So New York City was like a mecca for culture. And uh, it was a gritty city. There was all kinds of life. Uh, you know, if you went to 42nd Street, there were the sailors and the prostitutes. And then there was a lot of places where you could get uh, um, uh, voodoo things and, 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 and Spanish uh, and Mexican Uh, talismans and and there were bookstores everywhere and and you could live very cheaply and it, it seemed just alive uh, with also um, creative energy because at that time the city was um, economically oppressed so a lot of young people were coming there because they could live there very cheaply I can't say that it was deep poverty but it was a poor city 
so it was exciting. And I felt at home there. And I never felt afraid because there were people everywhere. People would say, oh, it's a dangerous city. And I said, well, no, there's people everywhere. They're out all night. I was never afraid. Nothing bad ever happened to me there. So uh, it, it, was a, it was like opening up Pandora's box, except only good came out of it. Actually, you are right, being an artist or feeling like an artist. And you said that rural South Jersey wasn't so pro-artist, wasn't so favorable for artists. Well, I mean, there was nothing to do. There was no, um, there, there was no center. There was no cultural center. And there, most of the people that I went to school with, you know, they, the boys were sent to Vietnam or um, the girls became wives or worked as hairdressers and and got or worked in factories, there wasn't a whole lot of work. And uh, truthfully, I went to New York City not to become an artist at first. I went to New York City to get a job because I lost my factory job in Philadelphia. There was no more work. A big shipyard closed and like 30,000 jobs were lost. And there was no... Uh, work for a 20-year-old girl with only a partial education. So my first duty was to get a job because I had no money. There was no credit cards in those days or, um, you know, if you didn't have money in your pocket, you didn't eat. So I needed work. And uh, New York City had so many bookstores, I figured sooner or later one of them would hire me, which they did, and I got... Uh, bookstore jobs for the next seven years, so it was a good place at that time to get a job. Could you please tell us about your first encounters with Robert Mablethorpe, who was not a famous photographer at that time? <laughs> He wasn't famous anything. I mean, it's very funny though, because sometimes people read my book and they say, um, well, you drop all these names, you seem like you ran around with all these famous people. I said, None of us were famous. Even Allen Ginsberg wasn't famous. I mean, there was a cult of people that appreciated him, but none of most of the beat poets, uh, uh, Gregory Corso never had any money. Everybody was scrambling. Jim Carroll was just a, a kid. Um, you know, it wasn't, uh, the, the cult of celebrity was not so big then. Even rock stars that I met that lived in the Chelsea Hotel at the same time as us, they weren't much different. But um, I met Robert by chance. Uh, I met him going to Brooklyn looking for some friends and, and my friends had moved and they told me to go in a room and ask the boy in there if he knew where they went. And so I went in the room and there was a boy sleeping And I stood there and looked at him, and it was like looking at a shepherd boy sleeping, because he had all these masses of dark, curly hair. He was a slender boy, and just sleeping peacefully. And he woke up, and I was standing there, and he smiled at me. And from that moment, it just seemed like we were destined to be friends, or destined to know each other. It's just his smile was so totally welcoming. It held nothing back. I was a, just a stranger standing in front of him. And uh, that was my first meeting with Robert.
The second meeting you had or encounter was in Tompkins Square Park. No, right? that was the third. Okay. <laughs> the second was uh, Robert also worked in a bookstore. He worked in um, this bookstore named Brentano's. He worked downtown, and I worked uptown in the same bookstore. And he had some kind of credit slip, and he wanted to buy something, and he came into my bookstore uptown because they sold ethnic jewelry. And there was a Persian necklace there that I really loved. It wasn't expensive, and it wasn't, it was very simple, but it seemed mystical to me. And uh, I really wanted it, but I didn't have the money to buy it. And so Robert came in, and we said hello, and, uh, and he remembered me. And he, he was there for like an hour, looking at every single thing. And then he pointed to the Persian necklace and said, I want that. And I couldn't believe he picked there, because there were hundreds of things there, that he picked the one thing that I wanted. So I wrapped it up and gave it to him. And to this day, I don't know how I got the guts or the balls to say this, but I said to him, don't give it to any girl but me. <laughs> and he said, I won't, and he left. And then the next time I met him, uh, I was in a funny situation because a week had gone by working. In New York City, you have to work two weeks before you get a paycheck. I didn't know that, and because uh, it wasn't like that in New Jersey. And I was so hungry, and I worked for a week, stood in line for my paycheck, and they said, no, next week. And I was really crying. I was so, so uh, disappointed. And then uh, this guy asked me for dinner, if I wanted to go out for dinner, a strange guy, an older guy, 30 years old. <laughs> And, but he was kind of square, you know, and uh, I was really nervous. I, I, I had never gone out with an older guy before. And, um, and my mother always said, you know, don't take anything from strangers because they always want something in return, especially a guy. So I'm thinking, oh, all right. But I was so hungry, I decided to go. So he took me to eat. And I was nervous the whole time. And then we walked down to Tompkins Square Park, which was the East Village, the grittiest of the parks and the coolest. And um, it's where all the hippies slept and everything. And, and I was sitting there on a park bench with him and he asked me to come up to his apartment and have a cocktail. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, this is just what my mother told me about. <laughs> so I, I was trying to figure out what to do and how to get out of this. And I was really nervous because I was, it just seemed like such a difficult situation. And all of a sudden I looked and coming up the path was the boy, was Robert. And I didn't even know his name, actually. He was just the boy. And, uh, I saw him and I just impulsively ran up to him and I said, um, 
uh, do you remember me? And he said, of course. And I said, will you pretend you're my boyfriend? And he said, yes. So I took him over to the guy and uh, I said, uh, uh, this is my boyfriend. He's really mad. Um, and I said, uh, so I have to go. And the guy was like looking at me like, like I was crazy. And I grabbed Robert's hand and I said, run. <laughs> so Robert and I ran, you know, ran away. And then finally we sat on a stoop and I said, oh, thank you. You saved my life. And then uh, I said, well, I said, I guess we should exchange names. My name is Patty. And he said, my name is Bob. And I said, um, Bob, you don't really seem like a Bob. Can I call you Robert? And he said, sure. So I called him Robert. And then after a time, everybody called him Robert. But Just Kids begins with Robert dying. Uh, it's a story of love, but it's also a story of loss. Well, I think it's also a story of um, unconditional friendship. I think really love and loss are the, it is framed in that, but the heart of it is uh, what true friendship is all about. I mean, Robert, you know, was my boyfriend and uh, it was heartbreaking for both of us to go through the transition of going from being so intimate to being friends. And uh, naturally this would break up most couples, but Robert and I had something so much deeper than, you know, things like, um, well, sex and things like that, which all of these things are important, you know, living together, you know, being true to one another, being physically intimate, they're all beautiful things. But the thing that we had transcended everything, and that's was that we bonded through our work and both of us felt magnified by the other. Both of us completed our self-confidence and our belief in ourselves as an artist through the other. And it was so strong that, I mean, I still feel it today. If I falter, if I feel lacking in confidence, I can access that part of him that believes in me and I feel stronger. And there was no reason to give that up. There was no reason to give, give up, you know, other things that we shared like our common laughter because we laughed a lot. And, um, and really, had he lived, I know that we would have worked and and collaborated and laughed till the end of our lives because we were only a month apart. And I always thought we'd know each other forever. And of course we do in a certain way, but I never imagined that he would uh, die so young. But um, I cherish that thing that, that we nourished and that we saved. You know, we if we couldn't save our you know, relationship as a couple, we save something more precious. 
And um, so, so I think that is, is at the heart of the book. What strikes me when reading it, it's your ability to communicate the love and compassion that was in your relationship. It's so strong, it resonates even after you put down the book, even years after, it really resonates and it's incredible. Well, it's I still feel it. It's like my dog, you know. I wrote that piece not long ago and just reading it, it almost made me cry. I still love my dog as much as I did when I was 11. I still, you know, feel, what we had was true love, me and my dog. And what Robert and I have is also true. You know, it's, uh, you know, so it, it would have to have, it would have to resonate because it does resonate. <laughs> In your book, you say that Robert was the one asking you to write your story. Why do you think he wanted you to write your story? Well, I think that, uh, one, I was the only one that could write it. Um, there weren't many people that knew Robert when he was so young. I met Robert when we were 20. And uh, we lived such a secluded life. And uh, I think I probably, in some ways, well, I knew his young self better than anyone. And he knew also that he could trust me. Robert really liked my writing. He knew that I would, you know, um, do well by him. And he wanted to be remembered. He was only 42 years old. Uh, he was just, he, he was still evolving as an artist. He had a, all kinds of work to do. He didn't want to die. He wasn't, he did not go gently. And uh, um, so I think, you know, he, truthfully, he, he wanted to be remembered. And I also think he was proud of our connection. So it took me a long time to write, but I promised him I would, and I did. How long did it take you to write the book? Well, he asked me in March of 1989, and it came out in 2010. <laughs> and it went through two publishers. But a lot of things happened in my life that made it difficult to write. First, just grieving for him, and then the loss of my pianist, my husband, my brother, my mother, my father. Uh, I, I suffered so much loss and also raising my young children that I didn't have the emotional energy to write it. And I kept shelving it. I'd write it and put it back and write it and put it back. And then sometimes I'd throw it away and start it over. But finally, in You know, I, I got to a point where I felt around 2008 or 9 that if I didn't get it done, then I'd never do it. And I had a lot of responsibility how I would, you know, portray other people, both living and dead. I wanted to make sure I was fair toward everyone and also was able to provide an atmosphere of the city. You know, there's a lot of responsibility. I think people write memoirs or autobiographies really uh, overly concerned with themselves and, uh, and don't realize how they impact other people's lives by writing about them, sometimes really vindictively. 
uh, a memoir should not be a format to seek revenge on people because you're writing to give the people something inspiring, something interesting, something that, you know, will hopefully they can identify with or that will take them someplace new. Um, it shouldn't be a, a format for, for uh, personal grievances. Uh, books are too precious for that. You write in the beginning of Wool Gathering that the writing process took you out of melancholy. What did the, the writing process of Just Kids do to you? It nearly killed me, that's what it did. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was not an easy book to write. Uh, well, it was difficult technically. It was difficult in many ways. I wasn't really comfortable talking about you know, myself, especially when I started becoming successful. I felt a little uncomfortable about how I had to really think about how to talk about that without seeming conceited or something or self-preoccupied. So it, there was a lot of challenges in that book, and it was also painful, sometimes sad. But the one thing I did like is sometimes it made me laugh out loud because the things that Robert and I did, some of them were really funny and uh, our arguments, because we argued all the time about the stupidest stuff. And, um, well, I don't even think this is, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but Robert, around 1970, started designing his own clothes. And uh, they were getting pretty um, flamboyant. And he designed these, like, chaps, like cowboys wear, you know, where they're around here. And he had like a cod piece, you know, here in gold lame, these pants. <laughs> and we're in a cafe and we're on our way to a poetry reading and Robert's wearing gold lame chaps and a cod piece. And uh, I used to like to have honey in my tea, but they never serve it in restaurants. They would only have sugar. So I would carry honey in a little bag. So I pulled out the honey and I put it on the table And I'm putting the honey in the tea, and Robert said, Patty, don't, why do you have to bring honey to a restaurant? And he said, you're drawing attention to yourself. I just, I don't even think I said, I just looked at him, you know, he's like sitting there with like four necklaces, bandanas, a big thing of keys, a gold lame pants for a poetry reading. And I said, Yeah, I'm just, you know, you know me, I'm just a, a real exhibitionist. <laughs> but, I mean, they were more playful little bickerings or arguments, but these things, that was the part of the book that I enjoyed. It just, you know, some things would just, you know, I can still laugh. I can still cry thinking of other things, but uh, there's a, there was always a lot of laughter which is important in life and important in any relationship. Uh, I always thank my mother and father who fought all the time. Uh, we were pretty poor when I was young. They fought about money. They fought about, I mean, they were always fighting, but I never saw another couple laugh as much as those two. 
They would tell, retell and tell stories about the 30s and World War II stories, but from the funniest angles and just be on the floor laughing. And I think it saved their marriage. It wasn't the kids, it was the laughter. In Just Kids, there's a description of your first performance at St. Mark's Church, uh, February the 10th, 1971. It was, yeah, it was uh, Bertolt Brecht's birthday. Right. <laughs> but that was your first poetry reading. Yes, it was, uh, um, it was and, and it was Robert who helped me get it. Robert always thought I should have poetry readings. He really liked to hear me read my poems, and he always wanted me to sing and and, and read poetry. And uh, he got me, um, he got a poet, Gerard Malanga, who was part of the Warhol's factory, to uh, let me open him and read for like 18 minutes. And uh, I really wanted it to be special, mostly because I was really good friends with Gregory Corso. And he, I would go to poetry readings with Gregory, and if the poetry readings were boring, which they were always boring. I mean, there was a lot of really boring poetry readings. And Gregory would go, eh, no blood, no blood. Eh, shitty, you're killing poetry. I would sit next to him and I thought, oh my gosh, if I do a poetry reading, it better be good because Gregory will heckle me the whole time. So I was seeing Sam Shepard at the time. Sam Shepard and I were doing a play together that we wrote called Cowboy Mouth. And I said to Sam, um, I really want my poetry reading to have something special. And he said, well, why don't you get a guitar player and maybe sing a little or something? And so I had met Lenny Kay and uh, he was working at a record store. And I said, I, I think that guy Lenny plays guitar. So uh, I went and uh, visited Lenny and, and said, you play guitar, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, want to play with me at St. Mark's, you know, and do some sonic stuff, a couple of songs, and then can you do a car crash? Can you make your guitar sound like a car crash? And he said, no problem. <laughs> the big finale was about a boy in a stock car race that, like, smashes against a wall. So... Uh, Um, I wanted there to be, you know, uh, sort of like feedback and car crash sounds. And um, so he said, sure. And uh, so, you know, we put together 18 minutes and we did our poetry reading, which began with um, what is now Gloria. The beginning of Gloria used to be a poem called Oath that began, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Melting in a pot of thieves, wild card up my sleeve, thick heart of stone, my sins my own. And uh, so it began like that and went straight into the car crash. And um, it was, uh, some people loved it and heralded it as a new thing, and other people thought I should be arrested for desecrating the church, which is not all that unfamiliar now, is it? But in any event, Lenny and I weathered that, weathered all kinds of storms, and we're still together 40 years later. Actually, you mentioned somewhere that uh, your first song or your first 
poem, maybe it was your first song, was Fire of Unknown Origin. Yes. That was part of the performance at that yes. time in St. Yeah. Mark's Church. Yeah. 1971 with Lenny. I would ask you please to read it so we can have the atmosphere. <laughs> I'm not sure whether Lenny can do the Well, Lenny crash. and I haven't done this for a very long time, but uh, I'm sure we could figure it out. But uh, the... Um, Lenny, come on up. Uh, this poem, actually, I wrote uh, in memory of uh, Jim Morrison. And, um, well, we haven't done it in a, some years, but <laughs> so if we fuck it up, it's your fault. <laughs> I'll take the blame. This is scary. A five unknown origin took my baby away. Five unknown origin took my baby away. Swept her up and off my wavelength Swallowed her up like the ocean In a fire Thick and gray Death comes sweeping through the hallway Like a lady's dress Death comes riding up the highway in its Sunday best. Death comes riding, death comes creeping, death comes, I can't do nothing. Death goes, there must be something that remains. Cause a five unknown origin Made me sick and crazy A five unknown origin Took my baby Thanks, Lenny. Thank you, Lenny. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> In Just Kids, you mentioned somewhere that you knew you wanted to be an artist, but you also say you wanted your work to matter. Uh, since I was a child, I wanted to be a writer. And then I discovered art. I saw art in person in a museum when I was about 12 and wanted to be a painter. Uh, but when I say artist, I mean them all. You know, not necessarily a painter. Uh, you know, what, whatever creative expression I choose or one chooses. People that have a really, a real true calling.
So it's not simply just expressing oneself, which is beautiful, but something more than that, something that sometimes you have to sacrifice deeply for. And I really, uh, I wanted to be one of those people. I wanted to produce work that, you know, would, would be enduring, the work that uh, would inspire other people. When I read Pinocchio, or, you know, I read uh, Murakami or Roberto Bolaño or, you know, the Songs of Solomon, anything that is given to us, it makes me want to give something in return for all of the, I mean, I'm a real book bookworm. All the pleasure in my life, I would say at least I've spent over half my life reading. And uh, so to give back something, you know, something worthy to be in that canon, something that would give some people equal joy. I noticed that you wrote about Andy Warhol saying you felt little for the can and didn't like the soup. <laughs> that you preferred an artist not uh, mirroring the world but transforming it. Yes, well, when I was young, I truthfully didn't have an affection for Andy Warhol. Um, as a human being, I thought that he was not a very generous or kind person. Um, his work really didn't uh, uh, speak to me. Robert loved uh, Andy Warhol, though, and Robert believed he was a genius, and so I didn't dismiss him because I knew Robert knew things. You know, I trusted in Robert's instinct. And um, but when I was young, he just his work just didn't speak to me. At this time in my life, I found uh, I've really gotten to appreciate what a genius he was, um, and. Uh, I find if I'm in a museum and looking at contemporary art, I'll just, I'm not so drawn to contemporary art, and I'll suddenly see something across a room and I think, that's strong, and I go over and it's Andy's. And um, the last works he did, or some of the last works he did before he died, his Last Supper uh, body of work, I thought was uh, genius, was uh, quite moving. So I've learned to appreciate Andy's genius. I think part of it is I didn't have to deal with him as a human being. I could just look at his work. And um, really, it's, it's, it's uh, important, you know, to, you know, we, uh, especially I look at our times. We're so celebrity driven and we expect, you know, um, one loves an actor or, loves the work somebody does, and then you expect them to live up to your, their, your expectations or want to know all about their personal life. In the end, the best thing any artist or any actor or uh, people that do work, the, the only thing they owe us is their work. And uh, if they do good work, their personal life should be their own. And uh, it's just that I kept colliding with Andy. You know, we all we all lived around the same area. But he he he's a great artist. You know, with Picasso, you know, they're two of the most important artists of the 20th century. So um, I've I I understand his importance. But what I think is important in the quotation about 
uh, an artist either uh, mirroring or transforming. Yes. I think you are what you do is you are transforming instead of mirroring what you see. It's well, two different conceptions yeah. of how to be an artist. Well, I feel more drawn to the transformative uh, in art itself. I'm not so drawn to nonfiction, and uh, but you know I also appreciate more and more someone that has the the, the ability to mirror our times. I uh, I think that it's important that people do that. It's just I'm not really that style of person, but you know. We we need everybody. We need all kinds of points of view. And um, I learned this lesson when September 11th happened. Where I live in New York City, I could see the towers from my stoop, and I watched them come down. And uh, and then I went. You know, I didn't live far from there, so I went and looked at the remains uh, of one of the towers, the South Tower. And it was an extraordinary, it, it was like a piece of sculpture. It looked like the Tower of Babel. And uh, I started thinking a lot about Andy then. I really missed Andy as an artist then because he would have known what to do as an artist, not to transform, but to document this extraordinary thing that happened. I'm not talking about the pain or the loss of life or the political resonance. I just mean the physical event and these buildings. Um, and I know that he would have done a body of work and that it would have been extraordinary. Mm. And no one was doing it. So uh, I had a little studio, so I had, had some pictures, made some pictures and made silk screens and did a body of work of silk screens only to satisfy my need or longing to have someone do that because in my whole lifetime Andy would would have done it and uh, I even did some of the some of the images in silver to resonate Andy's silver hair and his the silver pillows in his factory And I only bring that up not to speak about my body of work, but to speak of how much I missed having an artist there who could reflect and animate what had happened. Even though I'm not that style of artist, I recognize the importance of, of that type of artist. But when I was young, I was really judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> Just Kiss is about many people, many friends. You you write about you and Robert being surrounded by people all the time, and I think uh, we heard from Woolgathering. You were surrounded by your siblings and your spirit dog Bambi. Yes. And in your recent album Banga, it's um, Amy Winehouse and Mary Snyder. Yeah, I don't know why, but it's always been like that. Um, the first poem that was ever published that I wrote was in, uh, I was about 14 years old, I think, and it was a poem um, dedicated to Charlie Parker. Part, uh, Charlie Parker died in 1959, and my father used to listen to Charlie Parker's music and called him The Bird, that was his nickname. 
so I wrote a poem called Bird is Free. You know, just a, probably a corny teenage poem, but it was the first real poem I wrote was to, in remembrance to someone that passed. It just, it's just part of what I do. Uh, I can't say why, I just do it. I didn't plan to write a song about Amy Winehouse. And, you know, she lost her life, you know, while we were working on the record and I just wrote her a little song. Uh, Maria Schneider, I had known in the 70s and felt very sad when she died because she was, wasn't that old. She was younger than me and uh, wrote one for Maria. But on the other hand, there's also a song, uh, Nine, which was written for Johnny Depp's birthday, and he's very much alive. <laughs> <laughs> you call it your talismanic nature, right? What? You call it your talismanic nature. I suppose, one of them. It's one of my natures. <laughs> I would like you to read a little from uh, Just Kids. Uh, you talked about uh, Robert, and actually I would like here at the end of the conversation you to read the foreword. Okay. Yeah? I was asleep when he died. I had called the hospital to say one more good night, but he had gone under beneath layers of morphine. I held the receiver and listened to his labored breathing through the phone, knowing that I would never hear him again. Later, I quietly straightened my things, my notebook and fountain pen, the cobalt inkwell that had been his, my Persian cup, my purple heart, a tray of baby teeth, I slowly ascended the stairs, counting them, 14 of them, one after another. I drew the blanket over the baby in her crib. I kissed my son as he slept, then lay down beside my husband, and I said my prayers. He is still alive, I remember whispering, and then I slept. I awoke early. And as I descended the stairs, I knew that he was dead. All was still save the sound of the television that had been left on in the night. An arts channel was on. An opera was playing. I was drawn to the screen as Tosca declared with power and sorrow her passion for the painter Cavadorsi. It was a cold March morning and I put on my sweater. I raised the blinds and brightness entered the study. I smoothed the heavy linen draping my chair and chose a book of paintings by Radon, opening to the image of the head of a woman floating in a small sea. Closed eyes, a universe not scored, contained beneath her pale lids. The phone rang and I rose to answer. It was Robert's youngest brother, Edward. He told me that he had given Robert one last kiss for me, as he had promised. I stood motionless, frozen, then slowly, as in a dream, returned to my chair. At that moment, Tosca began the great aria, Visi d'Art, I have lived for love, I have lived for art. 
I closed my eyes and folded my hands. Providence determined how I would say goodbye. In, in 2010, you won the National Book Award, and I saw on YouTube uh, from the award you having tears in, in your eyes, uh, describing how you worked at Scribner's Bookstore, dreaming about one day writing your own book. Well, when I, wor I worked in bookstores for years, and my best job was at Scribner's Bookstore. And every year when the National Book Award uh, happened, uh, all the winners of the National Book Award, they would uh, order a lot of copies, and then I had to wrap them in blue paper and put a little silver seal on it, and I hated this job. Because <laughs> I was a really bad rapper. I mean, you know, they would, everything would look all crooked, and I'd get hairs in the scotch tape, and... But, when I would pick up these books, they would all have a gold seal on them because you would have to put, I would get like a big roll of gold seals from the National Book Foundation and it would say, winner of the National Book Award. And I thought that was so cool. <laughs> and I, I used to daydream about writing a book and then I'd win the National Book Award and then somebody else would have to wrap them. <laughs> And, and now you are admired by many young people, not least many young artists and writers here at the festival uh, who find inspiration in, in your book and in your life story. Uh, how do you feel about that? Being, uh, um... oh, I find it, it's inspiring. It's really, I never, I mean, my main goal was first to finish the book because I promised Robert and then give Robert to the people because no one knew anything about Robert except the end of his life. And I, uh, you know, he, there was more to Robert than, you know, someone who uh, broke new boundaries and died of AIDS. There, he was a holistic person, and I wanted people to know him as a human being. And uh, that was my great hope, and I thought, well, maybe it'll be a little cult book, and some people will read it. And and so many people have read it and, and talked to me about it. And it makes me so happy. Uh, one, because, you know, it's so nice for Robert. But it's inspiring. It makes me want to write more books. It, um, it's, you know, a, a writer or any artist can't expect to be embraced by the people. You know, I've done records where it seemed like no one listened to them. You write poetry books that maybe, you know, 50 people read. And you just keep doing your work because you have to, because it's your calling. But it's beautiful to be embraced by the people. Um, some people have said uh, to me, well, you know, don't you think the, that kind of success uh, spoils one as an artist or... You know, if you're a punk rocker, you don't want to have a hit record. And I say, you know, fuck you. You know, it's just like <laughs> one does, does their work for the people. And the more people you can touch, the more wonderful it is. You don't do your work and say, I only want the cool people to read it. <laughs> you know, you want everyone to be uh, transported or hopefully uh, inspired by it. 
but I'm equally inspired because truthfully, I never thought I would write another book of nonfiction or another memoir, but so many people have asked me to write one that now I'm working on one because, you know, Robert asked for that one and the people have asked for another, so it's, so I'm working. You made it all the way to here from rural South Jersey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is there some advice that you could give to a young artist who have a long journey in front of him or her? Just work hard and be true to yourself. And, uh, you know, and, and don't forget your, your, the most important goal is to do good work. When I was really young, William Burroughs told me, um, and I was w really struggling, we never had any money, and, and William, the advice that William gave me was, build a good name. You know, keep your name clean. Don't make compromises. Don't worry about making a bunch of money or being successful. Be concerned with doing good work and make the right choices and protect your work. And if you build a good name, eventually, you know, that name will be its own currency. And uh, I remember when he told me that and I said, yeah, but William, my name's Smith, you know, it isn't good. <laughs> uh, just joking, but, um, but, uh, but that's the, he gave me that advice and it was, it was a beautiful advice and I tried to follow it. Uh, to be a to be an artist, actually to be a human being in these times, it's all difficult. You have to go through life, hopefully, you know, trying to stay healthy, you know, being as happy as you can, and 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 pursuing, you know, doing what you want. If what you want is to have children, if what you want is to be a baker, if what you want is to live out in the woods or try to save the environment or maybe what you want is to write scripts for detective shows. It doesn't really matter, you know. What matters is to be, is to know what you want and pursue it and understand that it's gonna be hard because life is really difficult. You're gonna lose people you love. You're gonna suffer heartbreak. Sometimes you'll be sick. Sometimes you'll have a really bad toothache. Sometimes you'll be hungry. But on the other end, you'll have the most beautiful experiences, sometimes just the sky, sometimes, you know, um, you know, a piece of work that you do that feels so wonderful, or you find somebody to love, or your children, or there's beautiful things in life. So when you're suffering, just, you know, it's part of the package. You know, you look at it, we're born, and we also have to die. We know that. So it makes sense that we're gonna be really happy and things are gonna be really fucked up too. <laughs> just, to, just, just ride with it. You know, it's like a roller coaster ride. It's, it's never gonna be perfect. It's gonna have perfect moments and then rough spots, but it's all worth it. Believe me, I think it is. <laughs> One last question. Yes. Your children, Jesse and Jackson, they are at the same age, more or less, as you and Robert in Just Kids. What are your re reflections on the world that they are meeting today as opposed to the one you're describing in Just I Kids? I think our world is, uh, it's, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that each generation, you know, could say that their time was the best and the worst of times. But I think that right now we are at something different that I've never seen. Uh, you can say the best and the worst of times, but also we're in a transi transitional time. Something very unique to the history of mankind because of technology. Uh, everything is shifting at a very rapid pace. And um, there's, there's a lot of challenges. And, uh, but I just think also it's a pioneering time because there's no other time in history like right now. And that's what makes it unique. It's not unique because we have, you know, like Renaissance style artists. It's unique because the people, it is a time of the people because technology has really um, democratized self-expression. Instead of a handful of people making uh, their own records or writing their own songs, everybody can write them. Everyone can um, post a poem on, on the internet and have people read it. Everyone has access, an access that they've never had before. There is possibilities for global striking. There's possibilities for bringing down our, these corporations and governments who think they rule the world because we can unite as one people through technology. We're all still figuring it out and what power we actually have, but the people still do have the power more than ever. And I think right now it's, we're going through this painful sort of like adolescence again. What do we do with this technology? What do we do with our world? What, who are we? But it also makes it exciting. You know, all the young people right now, the new generations, they're pioneers in a new time. So just, I say, stay strong, try to stay, have fun, but stay clean, stay healthy, because, you know, you have a lot of challenges ahead, and be happy. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Patty Smith visited the Louisiana Museum in 2012. She was interviewed by Christian Lund, who also produced and edited the interview. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. I'm Pike Melinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>